Hi, this is Geoffrey Archer, and welcome back to Unput Downable, the podcast that celebrates and revels in those works of art and literature that are simply impossible to put down. Thank you for joining me. As ever on this podcast, I will be joined by a guest who will be equipped with two recommendations. One will be a book, the other can be any cultural passion of theirs. It just needs to be something that grips them and always leaves you wanting more. In return, I'll be offering up two of my own recommendations. My guest today is a man who is much loved in this country for all the happiness he has brought to so many millions of people. And that is an amazing gift. I've heard some say that he's the most significant comedian to emerge since Charlie Chaplin. He has delighted theater and TV audiences for well over 50 years with two of his own unforgettable creations, the wicked and wonderful Dame Edna Everidge and the stupid, but not so stupid, Sir Les Patterson. How many awards has he won? How much pleasure has he bought? Of course, I'm talking about Barry Humphreys. How lovely to see you again, Barry. What have you been up to during COVID? (laughs) I'm hoping, Geoffrey, my old friend, uh, that God will give me a bonus couple of years. (laughs) So on my final decease in many years to come, an angel will come and present me with a special voucher <laughs> and say, you lost a couple of years. You earned it. So we're going to give you two more. And uh, I, I wish I could say I'd achieved much. Oh, Barry. I, I mean, in those the last few years, though, there's many things I'd like to have done. And because I'm a stage actor and I'm a sort of, well, I'm a com- comical actor... I miss the laughter. I yes. miss... And the I audience. really do miss going on that stage and bringing a bit of a smile oh, to people's yes. lips because that's what makes me happy. And everyone else. And what a ridiculous statement you've just made, Barry. You're one of the most loved people in Britain. Well... It's a ridiculous statement. Yes, I know, but... Uh, you and Dame Edna, how is she, by the in way? In your presence, Geoffrey, I feel that modesty <laughs> is the watchword. <laughs> Self-effacement. <laughs> Nothing better than the wireless we're on. And I should tell our listeners or our auditors that I've no idea what a podcast is. <laughs> Something to do with pods. Are we um, restricted in our vocabulary? <laughs> tell me, Barry, how is Dame Edna? She had a good... Covid or a bad Covid? As I came here this morning, I thought to myself, I bet he asks me about Edna. So I'm glad you've really (laughs) fulfilled my prophecy. Edna, I think, is pretty well and very impatient to get back to her possums. Oh, very impatient to get back to them because she doesn't feel she's being useful 
if she isn't quite right on we, the stage, we all want to see her or isn't being particularly disagreeable to some poor woman <laughs> in the front row and she has taken to looking at ladies in the audience and asking them what they think of their clothes and <laughs> Edna said quite recently to a very nice woman who'd gone to a bit of trouble she said I'm trying to think what word describes you darling how can I describe your dress and I found the word affordable <laughs> affordable now you're being wicked and I think we leave Edna at that, at don't that. you? God bless her. Let's and can I, back. on behalf of us all, wish her best wishes? I will. We and want Mrs. to see her on the stage soon. Ease ourselves back into the world of intellectual discourse. Well, I always think of you, Barry, uh, in the 40 years we've known each other. I've seen you at a Cambridge dinner party with Nobel Prize winners, heads of colleges, and they have been in awe of you. So I've always looked on you as an intellectual, so I'm fascinated <laughs> to see which book you've chosen and why. Well, I have chosen a book called The Rodetsky March by Joseph Roth. Great writer. And I'll tell you why. We Australians don't delve much into our ancestry for obvious reasons. Particularly people in Sydney the memory of imprisonment and transport to Australia is still <laughs> too vivid. In Melbourne, however, where I come from, we did not have a convict history, but nonetheless, people came there, uh, those who, who came, and I, by the way, I should digress by saying that I once said to my mother, quite a formidable woman, I said, if people from Sydney came from convicts, where did we come from? And my mother thought for a while and she said, tourists. <laughs> so we were all descended from tourists. <laughs> Born with cameras strung around their necks, uh, necks and Hawaiian shirts. But... Um, this uh, book, why have you chosen I it? have a feeling, because... On my mother's side of the family, certainly, it's a bit mysterious. And I've always felt that I might come from Central Europe. There is no evidence that I did. It's, in fact, highly unlikely. But whenever I am, I'm in Vienna or in Prague or in Budapest, oh, I feel a sense of belonging. Oh, really? And so the literature of that region is powerful in its influence on me. And the Rodetsky March by Joseph Roth is about the decline of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And often books about a disintegrating uh, society are often very powerful. This is... It's the story of a family, of course, several generations. And the subtext is this terrible crisis in Europe which causes its decay and the rise, of course, of fascism 
Nazism, whatever, mm. socialism, mm. communism. Mm. So, in many ways, it has this metaphorical power, this book, but it's a, a gripping story. It's it is, I think, one of the greatest books of the 20th century. Wow. Joseph Rothke himself was born in Austria, on the border of Hungary. And so his childhood was spent while the empire was still hanging together. I mean, the, the, the world of Franz Joseph was still uh, intact to some extent. And then he was a witness to what happened, you know, the First War and then the subsequent rise of Nazism, from which he fled because he was Jewish, he went to Paris, and he was also a very dedicated alcoholic. So his personal tragedies and the tragedies of his country and of Europe, indeed, were all embodied in his nature. And it all emerges in this great book, uh, which I have before me in a new translation. And uh, I couldn't recommend it to our auditors. How wonderful. I've chosen, which is not far off your feelings, uh, I've chosen a book set in Moscow, uh, which was recommended, and I thought it was my book of the year. It's called A Gentleman in Moscow, by Immortals. Now, this is a story, I suspect, because you read everything you've read, but for the listeners, it's the story about a man who was a friend of Lenin's, and Lenin wasn't sure what to do with this aristocrat when he'd taken over the country. So he, he banned him to a hotel in Moscow, a grand hotel, and said, you will stay there for the rest of your life, and if you come out, I'll have you shot. And that's where the story begins. And what I love about it, Barry, is something Peter Giddy of Hatchard said to me 50 years ago. There are good books, there are fun books, but there are very few original books. And this book, the story, is genuinely original and it helps that he's a fine writer and a good storyteller. I, I wondered if you'd read it. I uh, have. I've, I read the book from cover to cover, and again, I must use the word masterpiece. I think it might be its author's only masterpiece, though one should never say that um, about a living writer. But it's extraordinarily original, uh, gripping, humorous, sympathetic, and in a sense tragic. Because the central character, the gentleman, the aristocrat, who is obliged after living, you know, the life of a a pre-revolutionary aristocrat, obliged to live in the attic, in a small attic room in a grand hotel in Moscow. And he contemplates suicide twice in the book and is redeemed by accidents. Which by the little girl. Mm, yes. One of it, by the little girl. By a little girl. Who saves his life. And so uh, this, again, is, I think, one of the great books. And if he never writes another one, he will be acclaimed for this, I think. I agree with it's you. It's a very good choice, I Jeffrey. Agree with you. And I know that you do read a lot of books. 
and you write a lot of books. But, um, and you've written serious books too, if I may say so, because your diaries, I think, are the amongst the very best things you've done. Your success is so well-earned and deserved and so annoying to a minority of people who couldn't write a letter, <laughs> who couldn't write a note to the milkman. Does the milkman exist? And incidentally, I just heard this morning that in Australia, where I come from, listeners, viewers, whatever you are, I just heard that you, you can't say window cleaner anymore. What, what, it's not, what have you got to say, Barry? You have to say view-enhancing technician. <laughs> a view-enhancing technician is a window cleaner. <laughs> well, I'm glad for that piece of education. Now, as you know, Barry, we have to move on to one other piece of that loosely used word, culture, where you can choose anything. And uh, again, I know it being you, you will have chosen something you consider a masterpiece and you consider unlikely to be equaled because you have that very challenging brain, very demanding brain and very critical brain. So what have you chosen? Well, I'm a highbrow. I'm an unashamed artistic snob. And I agree with my late friend John Betjeman that there is art. He used to say, art never lets you down. And art never does let us down. And in a way, during this period of enforced isolation that we've gone through and we continue to some extent to go through and we may even have to go through for the rest of our lives, we are redeemed by art. And those amongst us who can not just create masterpieces, but can create minor masterpieces, or who can just quite simply amuse us. One of my favourite movies is All About Eve. Now, that may come as a surprise. Why is it? Well, All About Eve is a pure entertainment about a subject, an unlikely subject. It's about a fan played in this great film of the early 1950s by Anne Baxter. When she was unknown. She was an unknown young actress mm. and a famous actress, uh, Betty Davis. And by the way, I've never been sure whether it's Betty or Bet. I've always called her Bet. And b before you continue, Barry, both of us having loved many actresses, I think she's among the truly greats. No one could describe her, no one could describe her as a stunning beauty. No. But my, when she was on the screen, you couldn't take your eyes off her. That was her gift. In fact, if you look closely at her performances, playing, for example, Elizabeth I, opposite my countryman, Errol Flynn. <laughs> yes. And if you watch Errol Flynn or listen carefully, he's still got a broad Aussie accent. Really? Even when he's playing Robin Hood. <laughs> um, I've never thought of you two 
a sort no, of... I don't have any other qualities that uh, Errol Flynn used for such, such effect. But um, if you look at her, she wasn't really a great actress, but, and, and certainly no beauty, but as you say, she is watchable. You cannot take your eyes off her performances. And in this film, the part is made for her. It's an immensely it's, enjoyable film. It's, it's a, a cruel bit, part. It's very wordy. Very cruel It's not part. what you would call a cinematic triumph. Oh. It's a stage play almost, really. It takes place in the theatre. Almost in one room, doesn't it's it? It's about the theatre. Mm. Uh, there's no great scene uh, that sticks in your mind, no great setting. But it has a lot of words and a lot of wit and a lot of irony. And as a classic movie, it perhaps falls down in some areas, but it's still, I think, a deathless entertainment. Mm. I loved the fact that... Here was the ageing Bette Davis at the end of a brilliant career, and here was this young actress so ambitious that she wanted to outdo her, and you could see the contrast between them. And there's only one character in the film uh, that really seems to uh, look on all of the cast with a jaundiced <laughs> and experienced yes. eye, and that is the critic... Addison DeWitt, played by George Saunders, who at this time was married to Zsa Zsa Gabor, of whom Oscar Levant said, Zsa Zsa does social work amongst the rich. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, t t when she went behind the Iron Curtain, she came back wearing it. <laughs> but... That's got nothing to do with the film at all, except that George Sanders is magnificent in the film. And Anne Baxter couldn't be better. And after she made the film, she met an Australian and unfortunately married him. If only my former wives could have been dissuaded from marrying me. And she married this guy and ended up in the outback. Oh, good heavens. Having a horrible time, and she wrote a book about it. Oh. So Anne Baxter disappeared from Hollywood for quite a long time and then came back, but she was a great actress. She was a great actress. And in this film, All About Eve, which I can see countless times, I sometimes watch things. Another film that I loved, of course, which I suppose we all admired greatly, was... That film, um, The Third Man, based oh, on the Graham Greene book. Masterpiece. That's a masterpiece. Masterpiece. Because, again, of course, that's set in Vienna in the kind of territory that I've told you I feel an affinity with. When we were talking about the Rudetsky March, incidentally, the Rudetsky March is a great tune. dum da da dum da da dum 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 dum. Oh well, you know, <laughs> I normally charge when I sing. That, you got that free. The Rudetsky March is by Johann Strauss, but it's another up, master. 
Barry, I've chosen, because I've known over the years, your passion for art. I mean, almost unequaled. When you go into a house, to get you into dinner is almost impossible. In fact, they're on the second course by well, the time you arrive because you can't stop looking at other people's pictures. Yes, and you Remember must... this, dinner at your place, Geoffrey, is usually just shepherd's, shepherd's pie. <laughs> right. One doesn't want that. I'm never in a hurry to eat that. <laughs> but... I came across a picture quite recently that you may have seen. It, it has an amazing history. It's, it's a Caravaggio. It has an amazing history it's called The Taking of Christ. It failed to sell in the London showrooms in 1912 with an with a opening price, if you wanted it, of 50 guineas. No one purchased it. A lady then went backstage, so to speak, and purchased it and gave it. She was a Roman Catholic. She took it to Dublin and gave it to a Jesuit foundation. And there it hung on the wall for all to see. And if you didn't get to the National, you, Barry, the people listening, if you didn't get to the National Gallery a couple of years ago to see it hanging both here and then later in the National Gallery of Edinburgh, and I had the privilege of seeing both, for me, he's just such, he's just one of the greats of all time. And that statement by uh, Sir Kenneth Clark that no one does hands the way he does hands. So you've always got to look at a Caravaggio and look at the hands. And I'm told the expert, Brian Saul, once told me that you could look at a Caravaggio, look at the hands and tell you whether it was the real thing or not. And this picture is just truly remarkable. Do you know the picture, Barry? I don't. I'm looking at this uh, laser printer of yours and of course, it is already in this small reproduction a recognizable masterpiece. But I would agree about the hands in a Caravaggio, but also the feet are very revealing. Oh. Because Caravaggio painted the feet, particularly of urchins, very accurately and dirty. He was the first artist not to airbrush, you know, his real people. They had the, uh, and the feet are really a great giveaway in Caravaggio, but also in this picture, the people in the painting are all looking in slightly different directions. And that is a marvelous trick Cecil Beaton, when he took his photographs, uh, when he took a group of photographs, usually a royal group, made it look interesting by asking the family to look slightly away and, and different from at other points of view. And it immediately made it a more interesting picture than a line-up, a straight yes, yes. line-up or a conventional composition. So this shows Caravaggio's genius... And, uh, of course, if you'd been at that auction, you'd, you'd have that picture, wouldn't you? Oh, you, oh, you bet. <laughs> Are you thinking of becoming a Jesuit? <laughs> to live with it for 30 years? With it would a very have been large a pocket. <laughs> a very large pocket in your mm. raincoat. <laughs> now, Barry, 
I want to end by asking you a personal question. Yes. You began life as an artist, as a painter. Mm. In between, you've written non-fiction, yes. novels. Yes. You've performed on the stage. Yes, I You do. have claimed on this program disgracefully that you were a singer of some caliber and that you normally charge large sums to I hear do. you singing. I do. Later in the day, though. I'm giving you your life back again. Which of those talents would you wish you had in abundance? Well, I have so many talents in abundance, Geoffrey. I, I, in a way, I wish I had my talents in less abundance than I have. Why? Because then I could just retire comfortably. <laughs> but I have them all wrestling to express themselves. Impatient. I think a painter, the life of an artist... Uh, sometimes when I step onto the stage, and it doesn't... I mean, we all have all kinds of things going on in our personal lives, mostly agreeable, sometimes very disagreeable, and we have to go on with our jobs. Whether we speak in the house, whether we make a broadcast, whether we have to go on stage and be funny. Being funny is not so easy. And... Only when I go onto that stage do I feel alone. I think I'm free of the phone, a constant interrupter of thought and deed. My family obligations mean nothing when I'm standing on the stage heavily disguised as someone else. I very rarely, as a matter of fact, except at the behest of friends like you, uh, do anything as me. Such is your power of persuasion, Geoffrey. But I say to myself, at lone at last, and I think my epitaph will be, my tombstone will say, here lies Barry Humphreys, old-fashioned comedian, alone at last. Mm. <laughs> and I wrote a song, which I will sing to you later in the day. <laughs> called alone at last. I think well, you should honour us with it now, Barry. No, no, it's very affecting. And it's going to be in my show next year. Oh. And this gives me a brief opportunity to mention that from May next year, I'm touring the United Kingdom oh. in small, beautiful theatres. Norwich, Windsor, Guildford, Bath, all over the oh, place. Oh, they're lovely. Theatre Royal in Bath and... Doing oh, a show oh, about myself. Yes. And at the end of it, I sing. I step to the piano and look. There won't be a, a dry eye in the house. People will say, you know, he's rather a nice chap after all. <laughs> Thank God I didn't have that life. And... Uh, the show is called The Man Behind the Mask, and I welcome this opportunity to mention it on your podcast. I know it'll be cut. No, it will not. <laughs> this will be heavily edited, what you're listening to, ladies and gentlemen. So thank you very much for putting me at my ease. And thank you, Barry, for being on the show. So a special thank you to my guest, an old friend, Barry Humphreys. And when I say old, we're both octogenarians. But thank you for joining me on this episode. 
Make sure you don't miss out on any future episodes. So please hit follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Join me next time when I'll have another special guest who will bring their own stimulating thoughts and special recommendations. This is the boring bit, done through compulsion. Please remember that I am a writer, and my new book, Over My Dead Body, is now out in hardback, ebook, and audiobook. I hope you enjoy it. Until the next time, goodbye. Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies, I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is another mask. (laughs) (laughs) You can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel.